Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers brewing beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. This episode is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligned in our values of inclusivity and diversity within the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members and empowers them with the skills necessary to excel in their legal career, whatever career that may be. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome back to another episode, everybody. A lot of things have been happening around the world recently. First off, the EU and AstraZeneca have been whipping out their first year contract law notes, debating over the rules of contractual interpretation for the delivery of the COVID vaccines. Next up, Russian President Vladimir Putin has jailed his opponent Navalny under the guise of being a Western spy, provoking national outrage and protest. But most importantly, Captain Tom Moore has sadly left us for the greater beyond. Arguably the feel-good icon of 2020, Captain Tom Moore was a 100-year-old World War II veteran who rose £32 million for the NHS by walking lengths around his garden. As such, I think it only fair that this week we take a step back to realise that, as fed up as we might be of being stuck at home, we must pay our gratitude to the frontline professionals, battling COVID day in and day out some coming out of a retirement, others just starting out of med school, to make sure that we stand a fighting chance at beating this pandemic. Lest we forget the level of rigor and discipline required to work in a professional like the medical one, we've invited Matthew Kessels this week to tell us all about the rules and regulations surrounding the medical discipline. As a senior lawyer at the NMC, the UK's regulator for nursing and midwifery professions, Matthew tells us about the life in regulatory law, specifically the multiple aspects that make up the administration of a profession, and how regulators strive to be supportive, not simply disciplinary, with those working within the profession. Matthew working as a barrister, we also take the time to discuss the key difference of taking a pupillage at a regulatory body like the NMC, as opposed to a regular chambers. But... Regulatory law isn't all we talk about. Having converted into law, Matthew discusses how coming from a non-law background can be an asset and the importance of leveraging your unique skill set in the face of the competitive and grueling application processes. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa and enjoy the show. Hi, Matthew. Good morning. How are you doing today? Hi, Max. I'm well, thank you. Fantastic. Now, Matthew, we've had a bit of back and forth before conducting this interview, but for our audiences that are listening to you for the first time, why don't you take a moment to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, thank you for, for having me on. It's nice to be here. As you've indicated, my name's Matthew Cassells. Uh, I'm a barrister um, in-house with the Nursing and Midwifery Council, and um, I'm a, a senior lawyer within the Professional Regulation Department in the Case Presentation and Preparation Team. And what does the Nursing and Midwifery Council do, kind of in a nutshell? Sure. Um, there's uh, probably four strands to what the NMC does. Um, firstly, they're um, a professional regulator for nurses, midwives and nursing associates. Professional regulation is, is probably one of those things that your listeners will 
have some understanding of, but perhaps not given a huge amount of thought to in the past. Um, obviously, um, any qualified lawyer, for example, will be regulated by either the, the SRA or, or the BSB. So that's the sense of, of what we do. Our four, as I say, main objectives are to maintain the register, so to ensure that everyone who is uh, allowed to practice as a nurse, midwife or nursing associate is, is properly on the register. We also set the requirements for professional education, so what the um, universities and training providers need to be doing. We develop standards um, by promoting a code and um, lifelong learning through revalidation. And the part of the process that I'm really most heavily involved in is uh, the fitness to practice aspect of the process, which is um, investigating uh, and taking action uh, against nurses, midwives and nursing associates when things go seriously wrong. So that, that in a nutshell, is, is what the NMC is about. As you can probably understand, it's quite a large organisation with lots of aspects to it, but I hope that's a fair summary. Yeah, no. So if I'm not wrong, essentially the end-to-end process for, for all things with nurses and midwives, you know, the, with their whole kind of professional qualification from the very beginning to the maintenance of their qualification towards their exiting and their retirement from professional qualification, if, if that's right. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair summary, yeah. What made you want to work with the, the NCM? Um, so to answer that question, I probably need to talk a little bit about my path into law. I did a, an undergraduate degree in, in politics and international relations. So I had an interest from a fairly early age in the way in which the state talks to and um, administers um, the people that, are, um, that comprise it. When I finished my law degree, I was still um, finished my policy degree, but I was still interested in, I suppose, how how the world worked, how how the the UK works in terms of the interaction between the state and the individual, and that was really what led me to to want to do uh, a law degree. And I think we'll probably talk about that in a bit more detail later. But finished my law degree and then did the um, bar professional training course. I was fortunate enough to uh, have a module on that, which involved um, learning a bit about professional regulation. I thought that was interesting. I thought the way in which the various professions were administered was an interesting aspect of the way in which the state talks to to individuals. I then took up a role with Kingsley Napoli as a legal assistant there in their professional discipline department. That work involved doing lots of work with the Health and Care Professions Council, who are a statutory regulator for, for different professions, and the General Dental Council, and doing some, some other work defending professionals who are subject to regulatory proceedings. So in short, again, quite a lot of experience in professional regulation, both academically and then practically at Kingsley Naplate. And when I was applying for pupillage, the NMC offer a pupillage. They, they've done so for, for quite some time. And um, I thought, well, crikey, I've, I've got all of the, the skills, so maybe this will be a good fit for me. And um, yeah, went for it and was fortunate enough to get it. So yeah, in a nutshell, that, that's how I came to join the NMC. So very much interested in the, the regulatory side of the law and the regulatory practice area. What is it about, say, regulatory law, especially with professional discipline and then regulation of, of professional qualifications that attracts you? I think there's probably two aspects to it, and um, I am just about long enough in the teeth now to acknowledge that the law isn't always able to do what's right and what's good. I think people come into law, I know I did, thinking that um, I was going to use it to right all the wrongs in the world. I'm not sure that that can be done or or, or perhaps should be done. (laughs) One of the things that I I like very much about professional regulation and, and professional discipline is that 
people put a lot of trust into professionals. And um, to take an example, and to use nursing and midwifery counselling as an example, when you are, for example, having a baby, that is one of the most profound experiences, one of the most frightening experiences of someone's life. And um, I very much like feeling that I am in some small way involved in ensuring that the people who are going to to help you through that um, very profound and scary experience are the right kinds of people. And that's something that's always attracted me about professional regulation um, because it is a way in which well it's, it's a way in which I suppose I can be involved in those important moments of people's lives to make sure that they go as well as they possibly can. So upholding a sense of a standard you know preventing people from being wronged when it comes to these professionals. Yeah I, I think that's a fair fair way of describing it. One of the important points I think to make about professional regulation and maybe a, a myth to, to, to somewhat dispel is um, I don't sit and my colleagues don't sit waiting for people to get things wrong and then gleefully pounce on on them for a fitness to practice case. I think more than anything, we at the NMC generally, and my colleagues and I in particular specifically, want to try and support people if their standards of practice do fall below a certain standard, if it's at all possible, want to support them back to practice, back to a a place where they're safe and competent and and people can trust them and trust the profession. Obviously, there are occasions where things will happen which are um, just beyond the pale and perhaps action needs to be taken. Sometimes there'll be disputes as to what went on and um, in a broadly adversarial process, those disputes need to be hashed out, which I think can feel quite prosecutorial and to some extent it is but ultimately the purpose of fitness to practice is to make sure people are fit to practice as opposed to drum people out of the profession or, or to counsel them for errors that you know, people make from time to time. Yeah so both having a win-win in the sense that you obviously want to look after the general public that's being attended by nurses and midwives yeah. but you also want to support the nurses and midwives themselves. Yeah absolutely I think we see ourselves very much as a part of the profession or or, um, an important support mechanism for the profession. As I say, I, I work primarily in the fitness practice um, aspect of, of, of our work, but um, colleagues that, that I work with on a, on a fairly regular basis are involved in, in setting standards and saying, look, this, this is how a good nurse or a good midwife, nursing associate should practice and um, dealing with revalidation. So ensuring people can be involved in lifelong learning and keep their, their skills up to date or you're setting the requirements that educational providers need to meet to give people the skills they need to be involved in that kind of work. So absolutely, it's a question of a supportive relationship with the professions as opposed to sitting outside as a sort of a, a scary overarching regulator, which I, I hope we're not. And that leads me to my next question, you know, your role within the organization. So you started out at the, at the LMC, you know, with a pupillage. So obviously you've gone up the ranks and gone through the organization up to now where you're a senior lawyer, but why don't you discuss it if you can for us, what your role was, how it changed over time and giving a sense of what a regulatory lawyer's life looks like. Sure, I'm happy to do that. I mean, my role has changed a great deal over time, as as is perhaps to be expected, having gone from the very junior rung to a slightly more senior position now. And I think, again, we'll, we'll probably cover pupillage of the MC in a bit more detail later, perhaps. But that was a very normal pupillage in the sense that um, I had um, two pupil 
supervisors um, who were fantastic and, and from whom I learned a lot. Um, I, I had a, a non-practicing first six months where I was um, helping other members of the team with paper-based work, observing hearings, learning from them as well as I could, and then spent some time on my feet for, for the second six months, which is um, a fairly normal way of doing that. Obviously, practicing specifically with the, the NMC's core responsibilities. Then, as I say, I, when I qualified, I, I qualified into the regulatory legal team at that time, and now the case preparation and presentation team. And really there, the role was... Well, there was probably two aspects to it. It's, um, it's the end of the fitness to practice process. So there will already have been an investigation that's been completed and there already have been a statutory decision made that this nurse midwife or well, it wouldn't have been nursing associates at that time, but um, that the individual, the professional has a, a case to answer in, in one form or another. And the case presentation team's role was to uh, ensure that that case was hearing ready, which um, would mean reviewing all of the evidence, seeing if we needed anything else, and then ultimately getting that that case to hearing, where we, one of the team, myself at the time, would um, present that case and um, get it to, to whatever outcome it was going to go to. There's also a couple of other aspects to the work involving interim orders. So when someone was under investigation seeking an order that would restrict their right to practice whilst serious concerns were were looked into and before there'd been a substantive finding and substantive order reviews as well. So after a finding had been made, obviously there's probably two findings which don't need any further work. Either there's not, not a problem here or there's a really big problem and you can't work anymore. But there's other ways in which a case can be dealt with. And if those ways, for example, conditions of practice order are to be imposed then they need to be looked at again and, and we would deal with that so that, that's a bit of a, a very short run through of the kind of work a regulatory lawyer would do as a senior lawyer i still do a bit of that um, and very much enjoy it when i get the chance but i am um, i provide technical line management to the legal team so there's I think between 20 and 25 lawyers who report into myself or um, one of the other senior lawyers um, and we as I say, provide that technical expertise if they find they're encountering difficult legal questions and also strategy work across the NMC. So yeah, in short, um, the the roles change quite a lot over time. And whilst I still do a little bit of the pure lawyer work, there's much more strategy and and technical support work now. So you've kind of taken on that managerial role more so in the later years than before it was, you know, that investigative court case preparation type role? Yeah, I think that's right. Although um, I've used the word technical line management and and I I use that really to distinguish from, I suppose, operational line management. So um, I don't look after people's diaries particularly or their annual leave or things of that nature. It's rather a question of, because I've seen a bit, I suppose, um, although there's always more to learn, no doubt, but I've, I've seen a bit um, and I encountered lots of different issues in terms of the legal aspects of, of regulating professionals and um, people can come to me and say, I've got this problem, I've got this interesting aspect of the case, not quite sure how to cut through it. And then we'll hash it out, we'll have a chat about it. And ultimately, I'm able to hopefully give them advice and, and sometimes give them instructions as to how I think they should approach something or how the NMC says they should approach something. All right. So essentially a sort of kind of knowledge base or knowledge master when it comes to the complexities of of these issues. So if anybody has a a highly controversial or highly nuanced and complex case, they can kind of refer to you and you can kind of give them your analysis and also plan of action, so to speak. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and having a bit of um, an understanding of the NMC's desires and, um, and, and really, if I, if, I, if I call the NMC the client, what, what, what the client wants um, and how the client wants to approach certain issues, there's an element to which I can give those, those instructions as well. It's quite interesting that you talk about the NMC as a client. And I, and I think this referred back to a conversation we, we were having in the lead up to this interview. And it's the difference between, say, working for a regulatory body or undertaking a pupillage with a regulatory body such as the NMC, as opposed to, say, the conventional kind of chambers or inns of courts. What's that like working for, say, an organization that has its own, I'm not going to say manifesto, but it has its own objectives and policy plans rather than being, say, a self-employed barrister in a chambers? Do you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you asked it um, today as opposed to yesterday because um, I, was, I was fortunate enough to go to a talk from a, a number of people at, at the NMC. Our, our, our general counsel is, um, is, is moving on. And, and, and there were some excellent conversations around really that exact question as it relates to the NMC. My takeaway from that, um, probably expressed better than I was going to be able to express it before going to this, is that the key difference between um, being self-employed and employed, particularly as um, a barrister, but but no doubt as a solicitor as well, is, um, and I'm going to use a phrase here, um, looking around the corner. And what I mean by that, or what much more intelligent people than I last night meant by that, is that... Often, if you're self-employed, you'll be instructed to look at a particular issue for a client, give me some advice on this, how should I approach this, go and represent us at this hearing, here are your instructions. And to some extent, that's that's the end of the relationship. And you might have another relationship further down the road, they think you've done you know, a bang-up job at the hearing, so here's another brief, or, oh, well, that was a good piece of advice, six months later, new issue, maybe we'll get this guy involved. But it is it's very discreet packages of work when, when one is self-employed. But where one's employed, I still have to go into the office the next day after I've given my advice. And if actually maybe I haven't thought of that particular issue or another issue has arisen and we need a bit more advice on that, and there, there's an ongoing relationship in a way that perhaps isn't with those discreet packages of work. So I, I think, as I say, I use that phrase, looking around the corner, and it's really thinking when I'm dealing with an issue for the NMC, when I'm asked to advise on something or, or give instructions to a case presenter or, or one of my lawyers or whatever it may be, not only thinking, okay, here's this issue that I need to deal with, but thinking, if I give this advice, what's the next thing that's going to happen and the next thing that's going to happen? And tailoring my advice to take into account all of those aspects um, which are going to, to come up in the future. So I think... Um, I think that's a key difference uh, between being employed and being being self-employed. I, I, I guess if you've been at the NMC this long, you obviously enjoy that side of the work or you know, are quite comfortable with that side of the work. But what's that like in terms of you know having this ongoing relationship and having to maintain that relationship? So whereas you know in chambers you might have the freedom to, you know, this is a transactional piece of work. I'm gonna give you advice here and then I kind of move on to the next thing. Whereas here you can't do that. You know, I'd I'd imagine your your range of actions or your range of options is I'd say either more limited or you'd have to give more thought because now you're thinking about, you know, like you were saying, the ripple effects. Uh, I don't know whether this is only just legal or also political or from a more PR perspective. What's that like? Uh, I'm not sure if it's necessarily a more limited range of action, but I, I do think that there is 
a sense that one has to be aware of. I mean, you, you said we don't have a, a manifesto, but and that's probably right. But the AMC has has corporate values, um, and you know, there is a strategy that the NMC is seeking to bring about, and that's a strategy that that's been approved by you know. We talk about the NMC, I talk about the Nursing and Midwifery Council. There is a council, there is a, a, a governing body. And, and if, if the council has decided we're doing something, then, you know, by God, that's going to happen, and, and rightly so. So I think in terms of the range of action, often if you're being asked to provide legal advice as, as someone who's employed, there's going to have to be some cognizance of the fact that you need to exist within a range of motion that's been, been set down. And again, if I borrow something that someone um, once told me, um, all the best lawyers are plagiarizers. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was that the, one should never um, say no when a, uh, when a decision maker or, or when a, a director or, or someone of that nature wants to do something. And that rather one should say yes, but. So I want to do this. Yes, but. This is going to be an issue for you, and maybe you can still do this thing, but this is a way to do it lawfully, in my advice. So we can do the thing you want to do, but we'll need to do it in a certain way, maybe not quite the way you were going to do it. And, and so I think that's, um, I don't know if that's political or, or, or just um, legal and, and having an understanding of, of being employed, but um, I think that that's an important aspect of it. Um, and it's an important distinction, I think, between being self-employed, um, where it's perhaps um, a less ongoing relationship, um, and, and one where actually um, you want to be using the law to enable the kinds of things that decision makers and, um, and, and operational people at the organisation want to do, um, as opposed to using it potentially as a barrier, just, no, you can't do that, that's not going to work. All right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense, especially in terms of how to frame advice to, to, to clients. Picking up on, on that word barrier, uh, I also wanted to discuss about your journey. Not, I mean, we talked about your journey into the MNC, but more generally now your journey into the legal profession. So you said that you did your undergrad in, in, in politics and international relations, and then you switched to law. I'm guessing you did the, the GDL. And then from there, undertaking the bar course and then finding pupillages. Now, in comparison between the solicitor profession and, and the barrister profession, the barrister profession is, is much more notorious for being a lot more competitive and not having the, the, the same range and variety of opportunities. But I'm quite interested as well as kind of coming from, say, a, a non LLB, the Bachelor's of Law, and instead of having done, say, the GDL, what was that like for you in terms of finding opportunities and, and finding work? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. And I'm in no way precious about my qualification, but I, um, I did a couple of extra modules after concluding my GDL and, and, um, and worked it up to, to a full LLB. And I think with hindsight, I'm not, I'm not really sure why um, I, I decided I wanted to, to do that because I, I don't think there, there was going, there was, I think there is a huge difference between the two. And I'm not sure that I learned anything doing those additional modules that um, has particularly helped me in my legal career going forward, nor, nor do I think it's been a particular advantage. One of the great responsibilities um, and privileges of being a senior lawyer at the NMC is that I've been involved in quite a lot of recruitment of, of lawyers coming in. And um, 
I can say definitively that we don't, and I, I, I have to imagine other places are the same, discriminate between people who have done an undergraduate degree and then some sort of conversion or enhanced law degree, GDL, whatever it may be, and those who have done a, a pure law degree. And I, I think the reason for that is that there are different things that you can bring to the equation depending on how you've arrived um, at, at law. I like to think, and perhaps, well, I hope accurately, that having an understanding of politics and the wider political relationships is important. And, um, I mean, the NMC is a good example of that because um, it's ultimately a creature of statutes. We're created by statute. We can't do anything that's not allowed for by our statutes. And, and we have conversations with the Department of Health about whether that needs to be amended. Um, and I've been involved in consultations on how perhaps we can amend our statute, how we can be a better, more modern regulator by doing that. So I, I think that's that's helped me. But then equally, I think people who have done um, a pure LLB, a sort of a three-year undergraduate course, that's not I, I, do, I certainly didn't do that. I often think they have a better... Um, I guess, theoretical understanding of the law. And one of the, the limitations, and I say that somebody's done it, so I hope it's not said in a way that, that in any way disparages against people who do this, but I do think one of the limitations of the GDL is that it's very focused on these are the laws and you need to learn what the laws are, as opposed to having what I understand there is more scope for um, on, uh, say, a three-year LLB to theoretically think about, you know, why the law and think about jurisprudence and all of those issues which perhaps you can't go into when actually it's being condensed down into a year and you need to know all the aspects of law when you get out of there. So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure one is better than the other. I I probably don't think they are, but, but I do think there are differences. Yeah, I mean, from what I'm understanding, at least from, from your experiences and from your, your advice in the beginning there about how your degree in politics and international relations kind of aided you in terms of looking for legal work is that at the end of the day, everyone's legal journey is different and it's really about leveraging the benefits or the experience that you have to offer. So while a straight up LLB student might have had that extra breathing space to think about the theoretical nuances to the law, the more abstract areas, and then the GDL is just kind of straight up, this is the law, know it, memorize it and know how to practice it. On the other hand, you know, you come from a, a background of politics, international relations, which allows you very much more to, to get your hands dirty with the policy and, and, and the implementation, uh, the discussions towards a lot of the actions and a lot of the laws that are being passed, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think that's, that's a really great piece of advice to, to give to you, perhaps your listeners, people who are they're looking to get into to the law and thinking, yeah, how, how do I do that? And I think the reality is that everyone has this you know, wonderful, unique skill set that you know, has come about through all of their experiences, whether they be academic or otherwise. And the most impressive people, that, certainly that I interview, are the people who are able to leverage that and say, do you know what, you do this, and I'd be great at this because of X, Y, and Z. You know, I often say, and um, I hope I'm not going on something slightly different now, but I often say to people that I speak to who are starting out on their, their legal journey that um, everything is, um, and I obviously speak primarily to, to young barristers, but, but everything is advocacy. And don't mistake your 
an application for a job for anything other than a piece of written advocacy and you need to be setting out a case that I am the best candidate for the job and let me tell you why here are the reasons here's the arguments I'm going to develop and, and equally an interview as well so I think you're absolutely right to say it's all about figuring out what you have and people have wonderful skill sets and, and then deploying that to demonstrate to, to someone who wants to give you a legal role why you're going to be absolutely fab at it. I really like that advice about treating a job application as written advocacy. Couldn't agree with it more. I think we live in a culture almost that's obsessed with qualifications and certifications and people think they need to have X work experience or A skills or have gone to B universities in order to be able to, to qualify for that job. When in fact, at the end of the day, you know, not all of us are the same. That doesn't necessarily mean that what we have to offer is any less valuable. It's really just about, you know, how do we sell it? How do we identify the transferable skills of those experiences and that knowledge that would benefit and contribute to this role? Yeah, 100%. And I mean, you know, there's, there's a world of difference between an applicant, for example, who can say, well, I got a first from here and I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. And you ask them a question and it's just, have you not read my, I've done all the good stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe it doesn't have all of that, but then you say something to them and you just think, crikey, you'll, you'll light up a room if, if we let you into it. So um, yeah, I, I, 100% I agree with that. And to that end, you know, speaking to our listeners that are interested in regulatory law, what are the things that they should be thinking about? I mean, we, we just spoke about how prescriptive work experience and prescriptive courses aren't what a society is really looking for, but more in terms of what skills they should be thinking about, you know, how they should think about their legal journey. Obviously, you took some time beforehand to work in a legal assistant role for professional discipline. I don't know whether that is also a, a testament to, you know, you don't need a pupillage right after the bar course, but, you know, giving yourself some time to work in different roles or working in different, say, aspects of the regulatory practice area would also be of benefit. Just commenting on what we were talking about, but in the regulatory law sphere. Yeah, I think that probably two things from that. Firstly, relevant work experience is important. And I don't want anything that I've said before that to, to take away from that because, because it simply is. And it's important because, as with anything, there, there's quite a lot of know-how about regulatory law. Um, and that will be the same for, for any aspect of law and, and, and no doubt most careers. And what I mean by know-how is things that can't necessarily be taught because they're infinitely varied, but which you just need to, to take in by, by some form of osmosis. So this situation looks kind of like a situation I've dealt with before, and I, I know how to deal with that. So I can apply that to, to the issues that, that I'm encountering. So relevant work experience, I think, is extremely important. Professional regulation is fairly growth area, as far as I can see. More and more law firms seem to be doing some work in it. Some, I have to say, probably doing it better than others. But yeah, there, there are some, you look know, at James and Barnes, you can see who, who's doing it well and perhaps who's not doing it so well. I think the, the second point that, that I would make is that it's really important when you are thinking about professional regulation to really. Um, and I've come back to the, I've, I've said this to some degree before, but I come back to it to really know your, your client or, or your prospective client and to have an understanding. Um, so, for example, for, for the NMC, I expect someone who is hoping to, to join the NMC to, to have an understanding that not only is there this, this narrow role, um, which is about, I don't know, 
prosecuting fitness to practice cases or presenting fitness to practice cases, but there's a wider organisation that is responsible for multiple aspects of the register um, or the professions and which has the multiple identities. So the AMC is is a regulator, it's a registered charity, and there's there's lots of different aspects to it. And um, I think, as I say, relevant work experience, understanding your prospective clients are um, a key aspect to getting into regulatory law for sure. Fantastic. So relevant work experience, you know, not to disparage that discussion that we were having, but obviously that that is a major benefit in terms of really getting to know that know-how that is necessary to excel in that profession. Now, I want to kind of circle back because I think we started off this conversation, you know, talking about the NMC, and then we got into a really good conversation about being an employed versus self-employed and the journey to becoming a barrister and the journey to become a regulatory lawyer. What I'm very interested right now, kind of contextually with the NMC, is how the NMC has been responding to COVID and what the impact that has been from both what you guys were doing in terms of fitness to practice and maintaining the register, but also in terms of looking forward whether that has any long-term impact on, say, whether it be the corporate values of the NMC or just more along the lines of the five-year plan? Fantastic questions. And I'm sure I could do a number of hours on them, which I won't. <laughs> 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 for everyone. But COVID was, um, it was a challenge for professional regulation everywhere. And I think the reason for that is because I mean, it was a challenge for the professions. Um, anyone involved in health and social care regulation is involved in regulating the very the very front line, people who are directly being impacted by the pandemic. So there were lots of challenges. And um, we very, very swiftly realized that there was going to be a need to amend. Uh, I've said before the NMC is a creature of statute. You can't can't do anything that we're not statutory allowed to do equally. We can't not do things we have to do by statute. So it's very quickly recognised that we were going to need to get our statute amended to um, deal with the coronavirus pandemic. And um, there's a number of, and I'm not going to go into them because it will take too long and it will be too boring, but the, the Coronavirus Act 2020 contains a number of amendments to the NMC's um, foundational legislation and um, when the emergency situation created by COVID is resolved and those amendments will, will go away or well there might be some discussion about whether some of them are actually quite a good thing we should keep them but nonetheless that was something that had to be dealt with and colleagues in the policy and legislation team sort of led on that with, with input from from other directorates and, and people in my directorate as well so yeah that that's sort of I suppose an underlying statutory challenge to actually how we do our work and what we can do one of those um, aspects of the challenge is actually setting up a temporary register. Um, again, it was not, not where my department particularly dealt with, but the registrations department um, were involved in bringing either nurses who had, I think, just left the profession, but still had the or nurses, midwives, nurses, associates, I should say, um, professionals back into the profession who had just left and um, advancing people who were in their final year of university onto a sort of a temporary register to create more capacity in the system, which was felt was needed at the time. So wide-scale changes to registration, to the underlying legislation. From a fitness to practice standpoint, we had historically held pretty much, if not all, of our hearings in a, in a physical setting. So panel, case presenter, registrant, rep, witnesses, etc., all turning up at a venue and dealing with it in that way. And pretty much overnight, we had to move to a system whereby we were holding a virtual tribunal system, really. And that, you can imagine, had both legal and technical challenges. 
And so, so yeah, there were significant challenges in terms of how how we go about dealing with the coronavirus situation. In, in terms of looking forward, I think that what the coronavirus pandemic has really highlighted is um, one: is there a need for physical hearings? And yeah, we need to do a bit more data analysis. But there's some suggestion that people are actually able to engage more and better with virtual hearings and. One can understand that, so we'll need to see what that means and, and whether you know, perhaps more hearings can be done virtually, whether actually it's necessary for physical hearings to take place in a number of cases. And I think more generally looking forward, our corporate strategy for the next five years had always been to try and move even further towards being you know, very supportive to the professions um, as opposed to something a bit more separate from. And, and I think really the, the coronavirus pandemic has put that on fast forward. And that strategy idea of working with the professions as much as we possibly can is something that was always going to be at the heart of our next five year plan and now and even more so if possible. So very much for the first part, both in terms of the temporary register and now with, with virtual hearings, I can understand that LMC has been very proactive in its approach to reacting towards the pandemic, implementing these changes and, and very much accommodating what was, you know, a shortage of nurses and midwives at a time of crisis. And also in terms of maintaining the standard on the register, because obviously if you didn't have any of these hearings, you'd have a bunch of registered professionals that either couldn't practice or were practicing and just putting people's lives at risk. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and there had to be that balance struck. And I mean, I, I didn't want to go into to, to it when I was just sort of reeling off bits and bobs, but you've hit the nail on the head really with some of the, uh, the corporate thinking, I guess, um, around how on earth do we deal with this unprecedented situation? And one thing that we recognised very quickly was we had to ensure that our, our core public protection function was still being fulfilled despite the pandemic. And so whereas with substantive hearings, there was a pause put on those, so the final resolution of cases, we, we put a pause on that to ensure that we were able to deal with interim order hearings and, and substantive order review hearings. And the reason that was important is because if I take a sim- single example, an interim order hearing will be there's been some really serious concerns raised about this person. We don't know if they are fit to practice and we'll need to have a substantive hearing to find that out. But we can't let them practice unrestricted with these concerns hanging over them because if these concerns are right, then they're going to really hurt someone. So those kind of hearings were prioritised and we made sure that those hearings still took place you know, without pause because they were part of our core public protection function. And definitely a testament as to resilience in, in, in challenging times, especially from a regulatory perspective. Now, in terms of the second part about the five-year plan about the NMC being more supportive of and working with as opposed to working against, I'm quite interested to hear, how do you see the NMC being more supportive in the future? Is this just a matter of setting out more up-to-date best practice guidelines or, or is it a, a new thing entirely? I do think it's a new thing. I, th- I think it's something that we've been working on for a long time and, and that we've been trying to, to move towards. Um, there's always been a, an ongoing conversation with the professions and there's always been a desire to, to make sure that they are as supported as possible. I think it's, um, it's an unattractive reality that I hope before my time um, and certainly here, a, a decade ago, that there was a real feeling that there was a separation between the professions and, and, and those that regulated them. And there's, there's been real significant moves to, to move away from that perception. 
and to move to a, a position where we are you know, supporting and enabling the professions. And there's been strides made in that in, in various different areas, and I've really not time to go into to all of them. But if I you maybe give one example of that kind of work. The fitness to practice directorate uh, a couple of years ago now, maybe 2018, published uh, a new approach to, to fitness to practice. The overarching idea was that we would be ensuring public safety and enabling professionalism. That was the sort of the, the title, I suppose, of the, the new strategic direction. It, it came out of an understanding that perhaps the way in which things have been done rather than necessarily the intention behind the way they've been done hasn't always done those two two core elements and uh, there's a number of different policy principles i think there's 13 overall so i'm not going to go through them all that would be boring and take too long but a really key aspect of this new approach was taking a person-centered approach to fitness to practice so um, we needed to to understand the people involved in it. And, and I suppose, impliedly, the criticism of the way in which um, things have been done before was that it'd been very process-driven. So you know, A follows B rather than really getting to the heart. Of, there are people at the heart of all of this and we need to be centred around them. That gives a clear picture, especially with the Director General proposal in, in 2018. We've had so much to talk about, both in terms of working in the NMC and the latest trends within it, but also in terms of your legal journey. As we go into a close, end off on a more, say, takeaway note. We've had a lot of inspirational takeaways, especially with treating written applications as written advocacies. But more in general, kind of looking back at your legal journey and how you started out, what advice would you give to people who are about to embark on their legal journey, whether they're graduating this year, they've already graduated, they're graduating in two years, because they look at the job market and right now things aren't looking very pretty. Needless to say, COVID has had a remarkable impact in terms of how people get work experience, the number of jobs that are available. And so I think people can look at that and say, okay, well, I've got to compromise. My legal dreams are in tatters at the moment, so I've got to rechange direction. What would you give to those people who are kind of uneasy about the future? It's a fantastic question, and it is a difficult job market at the moment. I guess to, to some extent, people may need to, to think about whether it's going to, to necessarily go quite the way they expected it to, and whether they're going to be able to do exactly what they, they plan. But I think what I would say, firstly, is the best laid plans rarely survive contact with the enemy. It's not just a question of COVID. When people you know, go out into the job market and they think, well, I'm going to be this kind of person, Sometimes life throws you a curveball and you do something else and it's equally rewarding and equally fulfilling and stimulating and and all of that good stuff. One thing I I do have as a bit of a takeaway, though, is that um, a career in law uh, and getting into law has always been difficult. It may well be it's more difficult now. I don't know, to be honest. There's always been challenges, but it is difficult and has always been difficult to get into and then to, to be successful at it. And I think one of the most important qualities someone who wants to get into law can have is resilience and resilience to I guess rejection and failure and the the reason I say that and I wonder if this maybe helps put it in perspective for for people is that particularly if you deal with litigation with with contentious work then you will be losing 50% of the time in any hearing someone is losing and there's only two sides, or well, sometimes there can be more, but inevitably there's only one person who is, is winning, whatever that means. And so it's a good test to see if you're going to be able to, 
withstand the rigours of, of that, of being you know, constantly on the, the winning or losing side of cases, to have to deal with the challenges and the difficulties of, of rejection and, um, and, and not necessarily achieving what you want to at the first time of going. You know, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed to, 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 to say to you that I think the NMC might be my third year applying for pupillage. So many people have a whole, a whole bunch of rejections and um, lots of people that I knew, people who probably you know, were better lawyers than I was and, and may well have been better lawyers than I am now if they continue, just, just didn't necessarily have that resilience. And um, I'm sure they're very happy doing whatever they're doing now, but they said I can't take another round of rejections. And, and to some extent, the reason that I'm here talking to you and they're not is, is probably because I was just about able to go one more time. So um, I don't know if that's necessarily particularly inspirational or uplifting, but, um, but, but I think it's an important thing for people to think about. Definitely. And, and I think that, that we can sell rainbows and top clouds and dreams all we can. But at the end of the day, you know, there is that, that true grit that's involved in, in, in order to really get ahead with the legal profession. It's just accepting the reality that rejections will be the norm, not the exception. And so really being able to not only take another hit or go for another round, but also kind of be proactive in terms of building off of those rejections and to learning how to change your approach, change strategy. What is it that you need more? What, what, what is it that you didn't emphasize enough? Well, I think you've, you've really hit the nail on the head and, and, and that's perhaps something I should have, should have said um, as well. The defining characteristic, I think, of a professional is, is self-reflection. So, you know, I've done this today. That was fine. How could it have been better? Or that didn't go brilliantly. Why didn't that go brilliantly? How am I going to change that in the future? And that's that's not just a question for, for interviews. And you know, I'm doing um, a, a, an appeal next week, and I will think about how that went afterwards, whether it's a win or whatever else, or whether the, the, the appeal is successful or, or unsuccessful. I'll think, how could I have done that better? What did that submission land as well as it could have done? Is there a better way I could have chosen that word, whatever it may be? And so, yeah, I think that constantly reflecting on successes and failures is um, the defining characteristic of a professional. And that's um, something to, to bear in mind when you know, perhaps you are getting some, some rejections, as inevitably happens when you apply for legal roles. Fantastic. And now to end off, obviously, you know, talking some very deep and important things. I always like to, to end each conversation on, on, a, on a bit of a lighthearted note with a fun question round. And so my question for you, Matt, is we spent this interview talking about, you know, how you found your love for regulatory law and professional regulation. Now I want you to tell us what was your most hated subject in the law degree and why? Uh, I, I'm, I'm just going to give a, a stock and cliched answer, but um, I, uh, I, I loathed land law, uh, <laughs> which I think probably everyone says. Um, I think the reason I hated it actually was because, if I'm recalling it correctly, and I have tried as hard as I can to expunge it from my mind, but um, there were so many different regimes, which any of which could potentially apply to the, the various land law transactions and just... Um, you're trying to get that straight in my head, finding the subject itself actually quite dry. Yeah, that was that was definitely my most hated subject. Although having recently had to um, be involved in some some house buying and, and selling, um, I, I rather wish I'd paid more attention because I think I probably would have done a lot better 
Um, so, um, so yeah, that, that, that's, <laughs> that was uh, the subject I hated the most. For well, sure. well, I find that quite interesting seeing as now you, you work with a registry, <laughs> like you would have loved land, the land registration act, the land registry act. I mean, yeah. but I, I do empathize. It's just, I think there were what, like four, four different acts, all which could equally apply. And yeah. the exam just became a, a habit of like, just taking the statute book and flipping back and forth. <laughs> uh, well Matt thank you so much for, for taking the time today it's been lovely speaking to you and, and honestly I think a lot of listeners will have taken a lot out of it so once again thank you so much no worries thank you very much for having me it was an absolute pleasure well that's the show folks if you enjoy learning about regulatory law and want to know more feel free to reach out to Matthew we've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below enjoying legal tea thus far well We want to hear from you. What areas would you like us to explore? What guests would you like us to brew up on the podcast? Give us a shout on our social media platforms at LegalTea.uk or send us an email at hello at LegalTea.uk to spill us your tea. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Wardell for scripting the show notes and blog post, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute bang of a theme song. Till next time. Thank you.